This is WOWDLP Tacoma Park. This is Sheila Blake, and this is the Artist's Experience Radio Show. Tom Sinakis, our radio partner, has the day off today, but he's going to be back in two weeks because we've been missing him. But I'm here with my husband, Peter Blake, and we're talking today about the art of Laurie Anderson, whose music you just heard. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, didn't you just have a show on Laurie Anderson? Hey, good thinking we did in January. But we want to notify our local audience that Anderson's big exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum, titled The Weather, is up only through August 2nd, 7th. So you've got another three weeks to see it. Plus, after our last show on postmodernism, we thought we had a couple of new things to say. And on July 23rd, if you go online at the Hirshhorn Museum, you'll find that Laurie Anderson is going to have a performance in the garden at the Hirshhorn. And I think you might really want to see that. And when you think you're swimming to the surface, you're swimming straight down, down to the bottom, all the way to the bottom. Secret codes and cryptograms I'm lost in your words I'm swimming We're going down to the bottom All the way to the bottom Rapture of the deep The exhibit at the Hirshhorn starts when you arrive on the second floor, up the escalator. Facing you is a full wall drawing in white paint on a black wall. You can see a picture of this wall on our Facebook website, which is where we show pictures of the things we're talking about for this show. There's a link to this album of pictures on the Artist Experience website. That's art-as-experience.com. So this drawing pictures from the back Laurie Anderson and John Cage in Cage's New York City apartment, uh, sitting in large chairs, facing the open windows, and listening to the sounds of the street. There's a calm about this picture, the two of them probably talking, but not that much, listening to the sounds of the street on a warm afternoon with breezes coming in through the plants over the radiators. I saw it, and I felt I was right there with them. I, I would so much enjoy that. So the picture was an invitation also. You can do the same thing with your friends, and you can enjoy the exhibition in that spirit. Well, this exhibition is relaxed in the sense that you don't have to work hard. There's a lot to it. And you can just walk from one thing to the other. There are all of these different pieces. And you can take in what you want to and come back and see something else. But if you're sort of an 
ADHD person. It's a lot. It's pretty chaotic. Pretty chaotic. But maybe it would be good. Maybe you would really, really enjoy. Maybe as this is, uh, ADHD would be. Uh, would love it. I mean, there's no difficulty or obscurity. In exactly. It. Yeah, exactly. and there's no virtuosity. It's um, right. Right. Well, Lori Anderson is a performance artist. She plays the violin. She dances, sings, paints. Don't you hate her? And she's not <laughs> great, like great, great at any of these things. But her pieces are fresh. They're intriguing and they're enjoyable for the most part. And she's cool. She's hip. She's 74 years old. And what has been at the heart of her work is telling stories. Don't you love that? Listening to stories is, for me, the most comforting way of paying attention. The stories she's telling are my favorite part of her retrospective. Some are incomprehensible. Some reach me really to the core. I asked a docent what he thought about the show, and he said, It's an emotional roller coaster. Yes, it is. How is it emotional? Well, one of her stories that's projected on a wall with a grainy film of skaters on the ice is about how she took her two-year-old twin brothers in a stroller. She was about nine. And she took them on the pond to show them something that was too close to the edge of the pond. And, and you know, the pond was ice so over, I should have said that, and the ice broke, and the stroller sank down into the icy water. I'm guessing that she thought, Mom's going to kill me. So she took off her coat, and she dove down and fished out one brother and threw him up on the ice, and then she had to search under the ice for her other brother, which she did, and she found him, and she unbuckled him and pulled him out too, and she took a twin brother under each arm and ran to her house and her mother said I didn't know you were such a good swimmer <laughs> and I want to say right at the outset there's a considerable amount of chaos yes the chaos makes things strange it lifts the work up into the space of art this is a theme from our sh last show on postmodernism. We learned so much ourselves preparing that show, well, about mixing high and low, uh, lifting and burying, making space for art, that uh, we thought these ideas could illuminate this exhibit in all its chaos, as you say. One of the many streams of postmodernism is the one promoted by John Cage. Quote, Art as a way of waking up to the very life we're living, which is so excellent once one gets one's mind and one's desires out of the way and lets it act of its own accord. Um, Cage was asked in an interview if it bothered him this, the assumption that anyone can be an artist regardless of skill, and he said, no, no, not at all, not at all. The whole thing of hierarchy, of wanting to make the most, the best, it took ages, relatively speaking, to get out of that European thing. Many people are now out of it. So Cage sees work being done by art, opening us up. So we allow the world to come in, to interpenetrate, to use one of his major words. Well... Peter, that's great that you're saying that because we've often, often 
noticed that when we've been going to a museum and looking at some artist's work, and you come out of the museum and look in the daylight, and everything is shifted. It's Your vision is shifted. You see things somehow with this sort of extreme clarity. It's right. very exciting. Right, you know, that might be the, um, you know, everybody... You, you look for the, how do you distinguish art from not art? And if you have that experience, that's it. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's plenty. It's <laughs> yeah. just plenty. But here's a story I love. Laurie Anderson was teaching history in New York. Most of the class was immigrants. She didn't know much about history, and she didn't know anything about Egypt. So she would make up stories about the pictures and the books, why the pyramids had openings so that the shaft of light would fall on the mummy's eyes once a year, <laughs> and they would open their eyes. After a while, she realized that the students' stories about her fictions were piling up and the administrators were hearing the buzz, and she was waiting for the axe to fall. <laughs> yeah, in a darkened room, in a darkened room, with images on the screen, a microphone in front of her mouth, she just made stuff up. She, she found her medium. You know, isn't that wonderful? I was a teacher once. You were a teacher. I can't imagine doing that. I mean, I can't imagine waiting calmly to be fired and not, not regretting what I had done. But really, was it so wrong? Were there students harmed? Of course not. Uh, but, I mean, it's definitely a firing offense. I don't, I don't blame the administration, but um, that was the birth of an artist. And that's why... That's why Plato warned us against artists. Because <laughs> they make stuff up. <laughs> they make stuff and up. And you know, that's not easy. Yeah. Making stuff up is not that easy. <laughs> when the Hirshhorn asked her to have a retrospective, so it's probably 50 years later, she said she was too busy. She's always busy. She's moving forward. But she rethought it and Still rejecting the idea of a retrospective, she thought of it as an opportunity, a space to create and recreate. 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 Yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> the idea of a retrospective thought of it as an opportunity, a space. And she could revise. And even at the last hours, this is true, when she was putting together the, the retrospective, at the last hour, she was up on ladders repainting parts of her large paintings so that they're all in one room and they're colorful and they're kind of out of place. Yeah. She just wanted to do that. Yeah. Marina Abramovich, the artist and one of Anderson's longtime friend said, Lori is a total nightmare of every gallerist. Good, because I hate the word gallerist. <laughs> <laughs> and there were times when the show was being created that Lori would disappear when there were decisions to be made. And the director, Melissa Chu, just had to leave it in Lori's hands. She and her staff had to put their confidence completely with her. There was nothing else to do. <laughs> and Anderson was there for weeks before the opening with gallery walls 15 feet high and 725 feet long, more than one-seventh of a mile, and so much of it Lori arranged and painted herself. Yeah, and, and also the floor. 
<laughs> she painted the floor. Yeah. I mean, I think that shows her generosity. She spent weeks, months maybe, creating these wall paintings that um, they're not going to be removed and sold. They're on the walls and the ceiling and floor. They're going to be painted over. So that brings me back to John Cage. In Cage's last poem... Uh, that he was working on when he died, he wrote, the necessity to find new forms of living, new forms of living together, to stop the estrangement between us, to overcome the patriarchal thinking, the authoritarian structures, and the coldness, human not-togetherness. This is what I see now in Laurie Anderson's work. It's in what anybody can see in this exhibit, the extreme level of collaboration that she engages in. Much of her work in this space in the Hirshhorn is collaborative with friends and engineers who can work with her to create robots and projections, virtual reality, musical instruments, collaborative musical composition, um, text text with artificial intelligence, etc. Every year she enters into uh, new projects with others. She was even an artist in residence at NASA for a while, uh, a position that she surely didn't need, and a project that got the artist-in-residence program at NASA permanently canceled. <laughs> <laughs> right, because... You know, John Cage said, I'm just going to continue that poem, the necessity to develop a culture that consciously opposes the ruling culture, a culture which we create. Mm -hmm. Well, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP, Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. We're talking today about the Laurie Anderson exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. The show is up until August 7th, 2022. So when Laurie Anderson was young, in her 20s, she went to Europe, and she toured around from cities to towns with her electronic violin, trying to figure out how she could get her strange form of expression into the galleries. She did a performance on the street where she froze her skates into a block of ice and played her violin until the ice melted and then the performance was over <laughs> and in the 1980s she recorded a song oh superman it's the first thing that i ever knew about her and it surprised everyone by going to the top of the charts after a long career of touring and experimenting and collaborating and basically seeing what would happen if she met lou reed Walking on the wild side, Lou Reed. They were both underground royalty, and from that time they were never really apart. They didn't marry until they'd been together for 16 years. They had separate studios looking out over the Hudson River, and Lou would call and say, look out the window now, and there'd be a great sunset, or a particular cloud, or a plane in the river where the passengers standing out on the wings. Anderson continued to perform for long stretches in Europe. Lou Reed had a reputation 
for having a terrible temper, but he was somehow mellowed in his love for Anderson. She had a clear, calming presence, and when she was away, he missed her terribly. My daughter Jane had brunch with him once, and Lori was really nice to Jane and Charlotte's dog, Balloon, petting him for a long time. She must have had a special dog communication because Balloon's not an especially lovable dog. <laughs> and when Louie died, Charlotte said, Oh, is that the guy who was with the lady who was so nice to Balloon? When Lou got sick, they went to visit Julian Schnabel's studio on Long Island. Everyone was horribly depressed, and Schnabel set up a huge canvas and told Anderson to paint. She'd given up painting decades before, but Schnabel insisted, so Anderson picked up the brush and slathered the canvas in black, and eventually she took his advice. She started to experiment with colors, and her favorite room in the show has only new paintings, no multimedia electronic magic, no noise, just big canvases covered with images of feet and legs and landscape and swirls of color. I mentioned this before, but she was working over these paintings the night before the show opened. I think with all the new digital images, there's really no substitute for painting. It's such a direct form of human communication between the artist as the maker and the artist as the audience. And then with the outside secondary audience because the painter's hand was always just there, pushing the paint around with a brush. And a few hundred years later, it still just happened. The paint is there exactly as it was left. There's no editor, there's no recording engineer, there's no choreographer. The importance of painting to Anderson has really made me think. The show's so big and sometimes screaming and sometimes intimate, but I was sort of between jealous and it felt like arrogance because her paintings aren't that great. But then when she said that they were her favorite room, I hoped she'd continue because to me, there aren't many painters left. Even art schools have programs that are more about new media and paintings is getting to be a thing of the past and it's lonely. So then I changed my mind. And was so glad that Anderson is willing to experiment to have the satisfaction of painting with a real canvas and paint and care to revise even just before the show opened. Wow, Sheila, that was so interesting. I wanted to go to a new topic, but your point about painting and its unique position and how it, what it meant to Laurie Anderson I just, I just want to let that reverberate a minute. Yeah, I, I know because, because she has access to everything. Yeah, and it, and yeah. she is That's fascinated yeah. by new media. She's just, and she has access to people who can explain it to her right. and help her with it. And at the same She's time, so successful. Yeah, you know that she does have access. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, she loves to paint. Yeah, it's so. Basic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so in that initial reaction of yours, which was a little negative about her paintings, um, you know, I saw the same thing in, in reviews of the exhibition. Uh, equivocation. You, on the one hand and on the other hand kind of stuff. And um, I think this is a normal 
reaction of, of you know, the art world to Laurie Anderson, it's fair to say that her painting style is, is like a graphic novel. Um, maybe that's why you reacted negatively at first. Um, I mean, you see a painting in a museum, there's an expectation that's set up. We expect that we will now be taking the next step in a long and wonderful tradition. But Laurie Anderson is not the next step in the developing tradition of painting. She is communicating her vision. Everything she does, she does to communicate her program about thinking about things, thinking about life. Uh, when she composes music for the Kronos Quartet, which you can hear in the exhibit, she's not trying to elbow her way into the list of important composers. It reminds me of bell hooks, something I saw on, on, on the internet. Bell hooks, uh, a widely celebrated philosopher, um, she died recently. She said once, speaking with Anderson in a public conversation, that it took a great courage to do her work, which was generally not validated by the art world. It would be instructive to watch a video for all of us, to watch a video of her appearance on The Letterman Show in 1984. She comes out on stage and she plays her violin like a ukulele and sings a song where her voice is filtered and distorted to become like a cartoon child's voice. And the song is about walking a dog. I mean, that took guts to do that, just like it takes guts to play her electric violin on ice skates and they melted through the ice blocks in Italy. I don't know if she spoke Italian, but day after day in a new place each time. And how much applause do you think she got? I mean, none. Um, but here you have, just by reacting honestly to her paintings, you showed us your initial reaction was, these are not great paintings. Why are they in the Hirshhorn? But later, in a spirit of openness, you, you saw it, I guess. Um, I saw her as completely honest, willing to revise until she got it right. The honesty I'm talking about is the honesty of art, showing something true in the world, the world as we find it, from a viewpoint of being fascinated, awake, not fearful, loving this world. When I find someone with this spirit, I pay attention. Uh, like Mary Oliver, I, she's a wonderful poet. She's also often misjudged, by the way. Uh, but Mary Oliver said, there is only one question, how to love this world. Lori Anderson said, there are two questions. <laughs> one. Why do anything? And two, how do you know it's good? I think Laurie Anderson's art must be based in a habit, probably from childhood, of seeing the world differently than other people and not giving that up. Seeing other people react, deciding to keep going, paying attention to their reactions, trying to get them in the right mood to react well, but never doubting, never folding, being proud of being different. 
You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. We're talking today about the Laurie Anderson exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. The show is up until August 7th, 2022. Peter, why don't you play a bit of the song Walk the Dog? All right, here's a bit of that song. song about dog walking. We're going to take a short break and be back in a minute or so with more about Laurie Anderson's current exhibit at the Hirshhorn Museum. Welcome back. 
You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD Tacoma Radio. I'm Peter Blake. I'm here with the host, Sheila Blake. And we were just listening to a piece composed by Laurie Anderson and played by the Kronos Quartet. And it's called Galaxies, which is so wonderful because this week the uh, NASA released the first photographs of galaxies from the James Webb Space Telescope. However, we are going to continue our discussion of the current exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. by artist Laurie Anderson. It's titled The Weather. It was installed with the active participation of the artist and it runs through August 7th, 2022. And we might have given our listeners so far a somewhat lopsided picture uh, of what they will encounter in the exhibit. She's not there. It's not performance art. It's something else. First of all, it's abstract. I think she's very interested in how meanings are communicated. She explores how gestures and vocabularies are used in expression. And that's an unfortunate abstract expression (laughs) in itself. Well, it's pretty interesting when you look at all of these different pieces and you're seeing them as a whole. Like, who is this artist? And and there's so, so much variation in what she did. And yet, if you look at them all as kind of like set pieces, mm. like each one is unto itself, and yet they all sort of swim around in the same picture. And so, you know, so it's very, I mean, there's a lot of thinking to do, but don't do it there. Do it afterwards. (laughs) Well, you know, I I said about gestures and meanings, and there's a, there's a, the first, the first piece of art, work of art that, that you really encounter, you pass through a dark passage into a room with black walls, ceiling and floor black with a curving path through the center and red flags are waving. The piece is called Salute. So these brilliant flags are being waved in synchrony by machines. The flags are unmistakably gestures. It's gestures of welcome and deep respect and come forward Come forward, honored guest, along the path that's set for you. The effect is uncanny. The noise is mechanical. The meanings of the flag gestures are felt implicitly, automatically. Um, But you also, of course, know that actually there is no respect for you in the machines. And what makes this work... What makes the room of flag machines beautiful, like we've been saying, it's not virtuosity. It's more Laurie Anderson's responsivity, her openness, her skill at collaboration with mechanical engineers and making choices, like making choices. That's how I want the, that's what I want the flag to do. 
Um, the machines are not disguised. They're machines. They don't always work, right? Uh -huh. the, uh, the one that didn't work on the second visit was a different unit from the one that didn't work on the first visit, and then they get repaired. But more than that, there's something very creepy about machines doing this work for us with machine noise. It's, it's a dream vision, uh, I think, I think, referring to our future life among robots. Well, for me, the strangest thing is that these machines are beckoning and welcoming you, you these red flags yeah. that beckon you in, but you have nobody to thank, because <laughs> who are you thanking these machines that are not even that great at being machines? So you don't know what to do with yourself. It's... You know, like you want to go, thank you, but, <laughs> but who are you thanking? Right, who are you thanking? And so that, I think, is the explanation for the, the lyrics from O Superman that are, that are on the wall. Mm. Well, I'm going to read you the lyrics. Okay. When love is gone, there's always justice. And when justice is gone... There's always force. And when force is gone, there's always mom. So hold me, mom, in your long arms, in your electronic arms, your military arms, in your arms, your petrochemical arms, your electronic arms. Your electronic arms, yes. My very favorite piece in the exhibit is a story that's projected on the wall. When Lori was a kid, with all those other kids in her family, there were six kids, she'd do anything for attention, and they were at the swimming pool. So she decided to do a flip off the diving board. Just do a somersault and land in the water. How hard could it be? But she missed and broke her back at the edge of the pool. She spent weeks in the children's unit, and... There with other kids, especially burn victims, on a kind of rotisserie, suspended, turning in the air and being bathed with water and medicine. The doctor told her she would never walk. And she thought, what kind of an idiot is this? And she was right about that. Later, she would tell the story of her time in the hospital over and over until it became just, just a story. And then, once she was telling the story and she suddenly remembered the nights with the screaming kids and the smells of burned flesh. And in the morning, some kid wouldn't be there, and the nurses would be making the beds with clean sheets, and nothing would ever be said about the kids that were gone. Yeah. She doesn't interpret the story for us. We can see that there are two stories, the second one being about forgetting and remembering. Now, you tell stories, too, on this show. You've told a lot of stories. It's part of an artistic impulse in you that everyone who knows you, everyone who listens to this podcast is familiar with. So as a painter, do you try to tell stories in your paintings? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking me that question. I feel like 
No matter what I'm doing in painting, I'm really telling a story. And if that gets through the feeling of the story, then the painting is a success. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we've been emphasizing the stories in our description of Laurie Anderson's exhibit. We, Sheila told you two of them. There's a lot of visually and audially interesting work there, too, which we'll just let you discover for yourselves. We're emphasizing the stories because her work is about communication. And it works best if your first reaction is, what the heck is this? That's, that's the way it works. Well, the Charles Eliot Norton Professorship of Poetry at Harvard University was established in 1925 as an annual lectureship in poetry in the broadest sense and named for the university's former professor of fine arts. This honor was awarded, awarded to, among many other artists at the highest level of achievement, Frank Stella, Italo Calvino, Howard Harold Bloom, John Cage, John Ashbery, Nadine Gordimer, Daniel Berenberg, Herbie Hancock, Tony Martison, Frederick Weissman, and this year, Lori Anderson was invited by Harvard to give last year's series of the Norton Lectures, which she did, streaming the productions. Her lectures called Spending the War Without You was really six performance pieces. You can watch them now as they've been collected on Harvard Milhandra Humanities Center website and the Nonsuch Records website and on YouTube. We hope you've enjoyed this show. We've really enjoyed bringing it to you. All right. So, Sheila, what will, what will your next show be on? Oh, man, I'm excited about this. There's a portrait competition. It's at the SAM, the Smithsonian American Museum of Art at the Portrait Gallery, downtown Washington. It's on until February, but I wouldn't say you're probably going to want to see it a bunch of times. It's a, a competition, and the, the work is of the highest caliber, and it's all different. There are, there are paintings, very, not that many paintings. Not but that the, many paintings. No, yeah. which shows you something, tells yeah. me something. But there are videos, there are, are things in light boxes that I don't even know how they make these happen, and uh, fabric art, stuff that's done with collections of things. And the first prize is great. It's made out of Vermeer. <laughs> Veneer. Veneer. <laughs> it's made out of veneer. It's many, many, many pieces put together like a puzzle that makes the most wonderful picture of a hairdresser under the Williamsburg Bridge. Yeah. And it's just amazing. And when I see a show that there are, and in this there were more than one pieces, that you're just amazed. Like, Oh my God, how did they do that? And your heart soars. And it's just great. So I'm, we're going to do a show on this. That's great. That's great. Okay. 
Stay tuned for our next program, This Music, from 10 a.m. until 1. Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other music that is entirely improvised. No standards, no standard repertoire. Our friend Gail Behrens on alternate Sunday evenings from 8 to 10 hosts Night Ride Home. Gail features singer-songwriters in alternative and indie bands. Just good songwriting. And in this time slot next week, listen to Lost Treasures with G.J. Mackey, who spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. And please go online to TacomaRadio.org to see the programming. And while you're there, click on the Donate button and credit us with one of your favorite shows, Us on Artist Experience. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. We're going to go out with some stories originally told by John Cage. So you can see, here's another point of similarity between Cage and Anderson. And then a song by Laurie Anderson. John Cage wrote several books. And in these books, uh, there are often a lot of stories. And he gave many lectures around the country over the years, and some of his lectures consisted simply of stories. For example, he used 18 or 19 stories as the irrelevant accompaniment for Merce Cunningham's cheerful dance, How to Pass, Kick, Fall, and Run. Sitting downstage to one side at a table with a microphone, ashtray, his texts, and a bottle of wine, he told one story a minute letting some minutes pass with no stories in them at all. Some critics said that he stole the show, but John Cage says this is not possible, for stealing is no longer something one does. Many things, wherever one is, whatever one's doing, happen at once. They are in the air. They belong to all of us. Life is abundant. People are polyattentive. The dancers prove this. They told him later backstage which stories they particularly enjoyed. So I'll read a couple. I have no idea if, if this is how he read them. I'm just going to read them from the book. I once had a job washing dishes in the Bluebird Tea Room in Carmel, California. I worked 12 hours a day in the kitchen. I washed all the dishes and pots and pans scrubbed the floor, washed the vegetables, crates of spinach, for instance. And if the owner came along and found me resting, she sent me out to the backyard to chop up wood. She paid me a dollar a day. One day, I noticed that some famous concert pianist was coming to town to give a recital, and I decided to finish my work as quickly as possible in order to get to the concert without missing too much of it. I did this. As luck would have it, my seat was next to that of the lady who owned the Bluebird Tea Room, my employer. I said, good evening. She looked the other way, whispered to her daughter. They both got up and left the hall. I was 12 years old. I got out my bicycle and rode over to KFWB. They said, what do you want? I said, I'd like to give a weekly radio program for the Boy Scouts. They said, are you an eagle? I said, no, I'm a tenderfoot. 
They said, did the Boy Scouts send you? I said, no, I just got the idea and came over. They said, well, run along. So I went over to KNX. They liked the idea and arranged for a time for the first program. I then went to the Boy Scouts and told them what had happened and asked for their approval and cooperation. They said it was all right to give the program, but that they would not cooperate. In fact, they never did. Every time I asked for the Boy Scout band, they said no. Individual Scouts all gave their services willingly. There were boy sopranos, trumpet, trombone, and piano soloists, and scouts who spoke on their experiences building fires and tying knots. The volume of fan mail increased each month. After two years, the organization called up KNX, said they'd never authorized the program, and demanded that I be put out and they be put in. They were. The band finally played. A few weeks later, KNX took the program off the air. When I first went to Paris, I did so instead of returning to Pomona College for my junior year. Looking around, it was Gothic architecture that impressed me most. And of that architecture, I preferred the flamboyant style of the 15th century. In this style, my interest was attracted by balustrades. These I studied for six weeks in the Bibliothèque Mazarin, getting to the library when the doors were opened and not leaving until they were closed. Professor P. Owen, whom I had known at Pomona, arrived in Paris and asked me what I was doing. We were standing on one of the railway stations there. I told him. He gave me a literally a swift kick in the pants and then said, Go tomorrow to Goldfinger. I'll arrange for you to work with him. He's a modern architect. After a month of working with Goldfinger, measuring the dimensions of rooms which he was to modernize, answering the telephone, and drawing Greek columns, I overheard Goldfinger saying, To be an architect, one must devote one's life solely to architecture. I then left him, for as I explained, there were other things that interested me, music and painting among them. Five years later, when Schoenberg asked me whether I would devote my life to music, I said, of course. After I had been studying with him for two years, Schoenberg said, in order to write music, you must have a feeling for harmony. I then explained to him that I had no feeling for harmony. He then said that I would always encounter an obstacle, that it would be as though I came to a wall through which I could not pass. I said, in that case, I will devote my life to beating my head against that wall. Pointing out the five cars in her front yard, the cleaning lady said they were wrecks her son had accomplished during the past year, that he planned to use parts of them together to make a single usable car for her. The only thing we don't have, she said, is a good pair of headlights. You know, it's very hard to come out of a wreck with undamaged headlights. One evening, when I was still living at Grand Street in Monroe, 
Isama Noguchi came to visit me. There was nothing in the room, no furniture, no paintings. The floor was covered wall to wall with cocoa matting. The windows had no curtains, no drapes. Isama Noguchi said, An old shoe would look beautiful in this room. Once, when several of us were driving up to Boston, we stopped at a roadside restaurant for lunch. There was a table near a corner window where we could all look out and see a pond. People were swimming and diving. There were special arrangements for sliding into the water. Inside the restaurant was a jukebox. Somebody put a dime in. I noticed that the music that came out accompanied the swimmers, though they didn't hear it. One day, when the windows were open, Christian Wolf played one of his pieces at the piano. Sounds of traffic, boat horns, were heard not only during the silences in the music, but being louder, were more easily heard than the piano sounds themselves. Afterward, someone asked Christian Wolf to play the piece again with the windows closed. Christian Wolf said he'd be glad to, but that it wasn't really necessary, since the sounds of the environment were in no sense an interruption of those of the music. One evening, I was walking along Hollywood Boulevard, nothing much to do. I stopped and looked in the window of a stationery shop. A mechanized pen was suspended in space in such a way that, as a mechanized roll of paper passed by it, the pen went through the motions of the same penmanship exercises I had learned as a child in the third grade. Centrally placed in the window was an advertisement explaining the mechanical reasons for the perfection of the operation of the suspended mechanical pen. I was fascinated for everything was going wrong. The pen was tearing the paper to shreds and splattering ink all over the window and on the advertisement, which, nevertheless, remained legible. When I told David Tudor, that this talk on music was nothing but a series of stories, he said, don't fail to put in some benedictions. I said, what in heaven's name do you mean by benedictions? Blessings, he said. What blessings, I said. God bless you, everyone. Yes, he said. Like they say in the sutras, this is not idle talk, but the highest of truths. There was an American man from Seattle who went to Japan to buy screens. He went to a monastery where he had heard that there were very special ones and managed to get an interview with the abbot, who, however, didn't say a word during the entire time they were together. Through an interpreter, the American made known his desires but received no comment of any kind from the abbot. However, very early the next morning, he received a telephone call from the abbot himself, who turned out to speak perfect English, and who said that the American could not only have the screen he wanted for a certain price, but that, furthermore, the monastery possessed an old iron gate that he could also purchase. 
the American said, but what on earth would I do with an old iron gate? I'm sure you could sell it to a star in Hollywood, the abbot replied. American 
In your long arms. 